0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We're dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This is the 25th of March 2019 and this is episode 106. On today's programme, Dr Jack Davis, an assistant curator at the Science Museum, talks about the impact of World War I on Australian British relations. This lecture was given as part of the End of the War and the Reshaping the Century Conference held at the University of Wolverhampton in September last year.
1: Yeah, uh, hello everyone. Um, Thanks for coming to hear me speak. I will caveat this that this is my first First World War conference in a couple of years, so please be nice. But the the title of this paper is drawn from contributions from a British nurse at Bishops Knoll Hospital magazine. So this is Bishops Knoll Hospital during the First World War. So Bishops Knoll was a hospital um, for Australian and British soldiers, and it was a mansion in Bristol that was owned by Robert Edwin Bush, who made his fortune as a sheep farmer in Australia, later returning to Britain in 1905. When war broke out, he offered his home as a hospital at his own expense, and the majority of the adaptations were completed within three weeks. So most stately homes became convalescent homes rather than hospitals because adaptations are expensive. But Bishop's North was slightly different in that it had an operating theatre, so it could handle slightly more severe cases than perhaps a traditional convalescent home. So the hospital had space for around 100 soldiers at any one time and helped thousands of men recuperate from their wounds and war experience. So this paper is based on a chapter of my PhD. So my PhD, as I said, looked at stately homes... As hospitals, and one chapter looked at stately homes for Australian, Canadian and Indian soldiers. So this uses hospital magazines, correspondence, official documentation and newspapers from Australia and Britain to detail the different ways that British and Australian people interacted in hospitals and from there it examines the ways that Australia, Australian men were able to shape and portray their own national identity and use the hospital to share this. And It dis- discusses some of the impact that this had on Australian-British relations at the end of the war. So during the First World War, a significant number of hospitals were created on the home front. So some of these were purpose built, but many of them were in organization, were placed in existing structures. So workhouses, hotels, country estates, schools, university buildings, and even racetracks, race courses, were taken over by the Red Cross and the War Office to supply adequate medical services for an extensive number of wounded. So while the majority of Australian soldiers were sent to recover in hospitals in Malta or Egypt, there were a few institutions dedicated to their recovery in England. And two of the most famous were Harefield Park and Bishop's Knoll. So Harefield Park is here. Uh, these are a couple of images from hospital magazines. You can see a concert happening outside there. There's a piano and a woman standing on a table singing. Um, it's a very lovely building and it was donated free of charge for the duration of the war and six months afterwards by Mr Hilliard Leek from New South Wales. A maximum occupancy, the hospital held over 1,000 wounded Australians. And then Bishops Knoll, Robert Edwin Bush. He was a cricketer as well, so he played cricket for Gloucestershire. Here are some of his statistics, which mean nothing to me, but if you like cricket, you might be able to explain them to me. (laughs) Um, He later became the Sheriff of Bristol, and then worked as an orderly in his own home during the war. He was made Knight of the Grace um, from the order of St. John of Jerusalem for his service during the war. But it wasn't just Australians who had their own hospitals. There are a number of nation-specific institutions and many other countries have their own too including cleveland house uh, which is lovely and it's now a spa i think but you can go visit i went with my nana had a cream tea it was really nice they have a lot of exhibitions on at the minute for the centenary so i recommend that one and then there's mount felix for new zealanders as well and mount felix is a good example of when they have um tented camps on the back so if they run out of space inside the stately home because those lavish drawing rooms aren't big enough they'll put these um these nice tents outside but these institutions are important because they give men the opportunity to recover from their wounds, but in really lavish surroundings, and it's a chance to see Britain, for many people who hadn't seen it before, to meet British people and to compare and contrast their various and different lifestyles. So most of the staff, it's worth saying, are British, but particularly for Australians, there were some Australian medical staff. In total, 2,692 women, uh, Australian women volunteered to be nurses, and most of them were in Egypt or Malta, but there were definitely some in Britain in England. In the official medical history of the war, Colonel A.G. Butler suggests that it was here in the hospital that the craving for companionship and home associations was naturally great, as men's prolonged isolation from Australia and Australian culture meant that the presence of Australian members of staff comforted the wounded and provided a common sense of identity. Uh, So These adaptations to Stately Homes were normally funded by the owner or from the local um, kind of local community, because it was a source of pride to have these hospitals and these institutions in your locality. So the Australian government, at the beginning of the war, offered to pay for their own wounded, but the war office were like, no, we want to be in charge. They want to kind of centralise control, so instead they charged the Australian authorities two shillings per head per day for wounded soldiers recovering in war office hospitals. That way they could maintain control. Um, so they were often betrussed by private philanthropy as well. So by the end of 1919, Australia had donated £12,131,872 and that doesn't include money given to smaller charities. So it's a very, very huge amount really. The figure is actually larger than that. So a, a little bit about Australian reputation before the war, or reputation and kind of national identity. And as Peter pointed out earlier, I am not Australian, um, which is a shame because here it's very nice. But (laughs) buttering everyone up there. Um, So British ships arrived in Botany Bay with the intention of creating penal colonies to replace um, the ones lost in, in North America. So meanwhile, in Britain, humanitarians campaigned for improved conditions in prisons resulting in the establishment of penal colonies. And the various gold rushes through the second half of the 19th century saw more and more European settlers heading to Australia to make their fortunes. And moving forward really, really swiftly, so beginning of the 20th century, Australia has its own tide and spread of nationalism like lots of other countries. And here they speak of the frontier or the Bushman, and it came to underpin Australian identity. So many historians have discussed Australian identity during the First World War, and many argued that the First World War indeed was a, a kind of critical in the establishment of the Anzac identity and the Australian identity at large. But Dale Blair suggests that a definite self-image already existed before the war of an idealised Australian man. He was a robust, resourceful individual engaged with the and combating the perils of the bush. So this frontier or bushman was forged in the inhospitable climate of Australia. He was tall, strong, broad and was able to survive in difficult environments. And if Australians had this image of themselves, and it wasn't just Australians, it was many other dominions as well, particularly Canada. How did the British view them? So Australia was portrayed as a place of adventure, a key part of the empire and a space for personal advancement. And these descriptions often focused on the same environment that Australians, <coughs> uh, Anzac, uh, sorry, the um, frontier man or bushman identity, was focused on. On the other hand, though, Australia was thought to be far from the imperial centre of the British Empire, and considered to be removed from the niceties of polite society. So, travel literature emphasised that through the influence of the British, Australian society could flourish and improve, but the stigma associated with Australia's penal past was hard to forget. Celia Morgan, in her work on British tourism in Canada, notes that people from the former British colonies felt judged by British tourists. In particular, they sensed a vague feeling of disapproval directed at them, an opinion that could be captured in a single word, colonials. So if Australians had a national identity based on their physical strength, size, and ability to survive, and the British believed them to be brass but a little uncouth, how did this play out in the armed forces? But not that well, it would be the short answer, at least in the beginning of the war. So if some Australians considered themselves to be more suited to... The life, to army life than the British, due to their size and their experiences in the bush. And it wasn't helped by rumours of physical and moral degradation of the British population as a result of the South African conflict. The idea that the Australian army were the best of all Australians, and that they would show the British how it was done, came under severe scrutiny after news of bad behaviour in Egypt spread. So Charles Bean, the official correspondent for the Australian army, Wrote as early as 1914 that matters were swiftly coming to a point when discipline in the AIF must either be upheld or abandoned. In Egypt, in 1915, Australian soldiers were seen throwing prostitutes out of windows and starting fires on the streets of Cairo. And an Irish officer later reported that Australians would be considered impossible by a home soldier. The men seemed to just do as they please in defiance of all orders. And sometimes they please to do very dastardly things in the ways of uh, rioting or smashing up shops. They have decided that the government has no right to charge them fares on the railway to Sydney, so they simply don't buy tickets. They laugh at the ticket collectors and sometimes bundle them off the trains if the trains slow up passing a station. So at least in the early stages of the war, they seem to have a bit of a reputation for being a bit unruly. And newspaper articles like this were published in Australia to kind of try and challenge that because they were quite shocking stories. And there's been some discussion as to why this is, and Jeff Barr suggests that class was less of a distinguishing feature in Australian society, and class, as we know, is integral to the, the military disciplinary structure. So perhaps that, that weakens it. Um, while Bill Gamage suggests that Australians consider themselves to, to be superior, the idea of the frontier man theory, and, and that was integral to this. It's also worth noting that the Australian government didn't allow the British authorities to kind of have free reign over disciplinary measures. So it meant Australian soldiers were not punished by the death penalty, and the worst punishment they faced in theory was, um, uh, sorry, was dismissal, which wasn't so bad considering. But how did this affect Australian men in hospitals in Britain? So Australia was, and still is, very far away, so the wounded weren't sent home, unlike others. Instead they went to Malta, Egypt or Britain to recover from their wounds. And this meant that they had the chance so some of them may have uh, been born in britain and moved to australia they got to go home some of them may have never been there before so it gave them the chance to go there to see national and sites of national and imperial importance to meet and mix with people from a different culture but uh, conscious so, so sorry there we go hospital magazines so this is where i'm drawing quite a lot of this from hospital magazines are if you guys don't know they are kind of Indicative of time, there's lots of school magazines, kind of club magazines, and hostel magazines were very popular and were sold as a form of fundraising. They were shared throughout Britain, but Australian ones, they got free postage back to Australia, which was quite nice. So conscious of the Australian reputation and British prejudices against men from the Dominions, as well as the need for financial aid, hospitals did their best to recast the Australian soldier from his boisterous reputation to a brave soldier deserving of respect and help. The first ever edition of QE, the magazine from Bishop's Knoll mentions the patient courage and fine discipline of these Australian soldiers, 98% of whom acquitted themselves like men, and at the same time were almost womanly in the tenderness they showed their more helpless companions. So this phrasing suggested that the Australian wounded, or at least 98% of them, were charitable characters deserving of help and support. These magazines were soldiers for fundraising, and they were able to send them home, so it alleviated concerns not only of the British, but also of the Australian populations. So contributions from, uh, so Sister Sylvia, Sister Sylvia I think, sorry, so she is where I've drawn the title of this paper from and these contributions suggest an awareness of the reputation or bad behaviour. So she compiled an article entitled What I Think of Australians and in it she recounted that one has heard so many lurid tales of the fierce deeds of the backwards men, but she never found them fierce, wild or woolly. They have already greatly improved since the Glyphaly days when they suffered much from swelled head and used to triash English women much by implying that no could fight but the Anzacs. So at least in the early stages of the war, Australian soldiers had a reputation... Sorry, that's the wrong page. This is good. Um, Another nurse described the men as being of pluck and grit and they're good and thoughtful too. So these accounts demonstrate that the prejudices of the British population permeated the hospital space resulting in some surprise when they find that their charge is to be full of good characteristics. Sister Sylvia discussed NAP, the Australian's disdain of NCOs and officers, patronisingly attributing this to the fact that they have no regimental traditions to look back on and to maintain. As patients, they are considerate and grateful, but ruling them with an iron rod is impossible. But when treated with a certain amount of leniency, no one could expect more kindness. She then attributes the disdain of rules to their upbringing. Considering the free life to which most of our colonials are accustomed, it is marvellous how well they conform to the hospital environment. Here she epitomises the patronising attitude many British people had to the Dominions. And Australia hadn't been a colony for you know, many years at this point. So it's really just a, yeah, a not particularly nice thing to say. So this representation of the Australian soldier was published to challenge the idea that they were unruly. Instead, they're represented as exemplary patients, deserving of the treatment that they're receiving. But it also emphasised the importance of the Australian environment in forming their character, consolidating the frontier man or bush theory. So if Sister Sylvia patronisingly framed Australian soldiers as deserving of the Empire's appreciation and help, how did the men portray themselves? So Australian men used hostile magazines as a way of juxtaposing themselves and their identity to the British. They were keen to emphasise their own experiences and Australia's geographical isolation on the fringes of the Empire. So Gunner, F. Jackson, wrote that we ain't used to women folk around the parts I come from, and those you do see, well, you don't get duchesses straying around in the bush. So here Jackson used the environment at home to differentiate himself from Britain and the British class system. And this was a similar pattern that was repeated in various articles. Many regiments brought mascots with them from home. So one hospital magazine discussed Tommy Brown, which you can see on the left, So the late mascot of the motor transport section of a supply column of the Australian field force, which is quite a mouthful. The article stated that the koala, misspelled as well, is indigenous to practically the whole continent. Tommy Brown had a regimental number, 11,778, and an identification disk suspended from his neck. Uh, So there were also a couple of joeys. as a pretty interesting story about a baby kangaroo that was a mascot in a hospital and escaped and unfortunately got shot by a farmer who had never seen a kangaroo before. Um, It's not particularly nice but these animals were brought over from home to differentiate Australia from Britain but they were also used to educate British people about lifestyles in Australia and the extensive nature of the empire. Other submissions also tried to challenge the negative reputation of the Anzac soldiers by recasting the men as loyal to the empire who swear they never did before kiss any girl till you they saw whose heart is strong and courage true he came across the waters blue to save our flag and honor to the brave lads of the rising sun so australian men regularly wrote about the excellent concerts parties trips and facilities that the hospitals had and they wrote these poems and they wrote quite a lot of poems actually i think that one of my favorite poems in Hostel magazine was an australian one and it's i tiddly it um, old Tommy can have old blighty give us young Australia because we think it's a failure and I quite liked that one, that was quite good. <laughs> um, so hospital magazines were kind of used to, to present a very positive reflection of life in hospital as that's not surprising because they were censored. But it really emphasized the importance of the Australian environment and the positive characteristics of the Australian charges. So they're trying to replace the stories of the boisterous and the, on the brash with accounts of fierce loyalty and active contribution. The hospital became a site of imperial propaganda, and instead of just repairing the broken bodies of Britain and her allies, it was used to bridge gaps and promote unity. Men from the dominions were depicted as kind and brave and deserving of help. And while the stories published told a story of exceptional care from the war office and British society, which helped to calm concerns of people at home. So, though hospital magazines focused on the great care supplied by the British, Australians weren't always treated so well. Men who were less fortunate didn't go to Britain, they were sent elsewhere, and the care in Egypt was thought to be particularly poor, and many men faced a two or three long day hike to Alexandria before receiving medical care. Stories spread of men being treated as if they'd committed a crime and being wounded in a Mustafa convalescent camp in Egypt, and this strained relations between Britain and Australia. As mentioned, when Australia entered the war, they hoped to care for their own wounded, but the War Office wanted to maintain control. So, with that in mind, these stories had significant repercussions on Australian and British relations. By the end of the war, Neville House, who was in charge of the AIF's medical services, wrote that he personally will recommend to my government when this war is over that under no conceivable conditions ought they ever to trust to the medical arrangements that may be made by imperial authorities for the care of their sick and wounded. And this appears to be a larger trend surrounding the way the British treated wounded soldiers from the Dominions and the colonies. As mentioned previously, many of them felt judged by the British, and Canadian soldiers in particular felt that the War Office prioritised the lives of British citizens at their expense. A Canadian report published in 1916 denounced VAD hospitals and convalescent homes as being poorly supplied and manned by untrained women who were more interested in marrying the recovering men than actually helping them to recover. And this report resulted in men becoming rivals who should have been friends. The reticence and silent devotion of the soldiers gave place to murmurings and discontent. In Canada, the results were deplorable. The public came to believe that to the inevitable hardship of a soldier was added the cruelty of medical incompetence and neglect. And it was because of moments like these that the hostile space took up a new importance. Not only was it a place to provide care and comfort to soldiers from all over the empire, but it had to be a shining example of how much the War Office and the British authorities cared about the sacrifices of other nations. It became a tool for the Imperial authorities to maintain and improve relations between Britain and its dominion states. So this paper has shown that the hostile space became a battleground for imperial relations. Australians came to recover in Britain, but were unable to shake off the stigma of their penal past. The actions of a few soldiers tarnished the reputation of them or of the entire group. And when they came to britain they faced severe (coughs) prejudice hospital magazines were used to recast the wounded australian and challenge british preconceptions about their australian brothers to promote charitable giving from across the empire articles spoke of british kindness the beautiful countryside and the warm welcome that men have received while embellishing the differences between british and australian life to bolster australian identities in hospitals in britain and this was especially important as they challenged the stories of poor care that spread throughout the empire, and they worked to improve relations between Britain and her allies. Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition